A quick note before we start. The Vatican released the long-awaited report on former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick after production for this episode began. So our team decided that the McCarrick report deserves its own treatment. In the coming weeks, we'll have another episode on the McCarrick report. Please note, this episode contains discussions on the topic of sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. A few weeks before being named the Archbishop of Los Angeles, Roger Mahoney attended the annual meeting of the Bishops' Conference. It was 1985. At that meeting, three experts addressed the assembly about pedophilia. And one of the things they'd recommended was that the bishops meet with their priests about it. Harriet Ryan, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter at the Los Angeles Times. So when he got back to L.A. in 1986, he has 1,100 priests come to a, a huge meeting. And one of the things that he talks about is pedophilia and what a danger it is, um, obviously, to children, but also to the church and, and to priests. And he says, if you have this problem, I want you to come talk to me. Don't hide it. Come talk to me. Father Michael Baker was one of the priests in the room. Baker wrote him a letter after the retreat, and he said, during the retreat, you provided us with an invitation to talk to you about a shadow that some of us might have. I would like to take you up on the invitation. Mahoney invited Father Baker to the chancery to talk. Baker says that he's molested two boys. And Mahoney, in that moment, I believe, draws back on that meeting that the conference had had with his fellow bishops. And they said in that conference, make sure you praise the priest for coming forward to you. So he praises Michael Baker and tells him, this is great that you came. You're doing exactly the right thing. And I'm going to get you help and send him to New Mexico. Baker later said that at the meeting, another person in the meeting had raised the possibility of going to the police. And then Mahoney said, no, 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 no. But we don't know. I mean, Baker's not like the best narrator. So Baker gets sent to New Mexico for treatment. And Mahoney, you know, he doesn't know this guy other than that one meeting, but he keeps really close tabs on what's happening in this treatment. Father Baker was not the first priest in Mahoney's archdiocese with this kind of history. At that point, Mahoney was two years into the job and had already had to deal with nine abusers, Baker's a nine. So when Baker is done with his treatment and comes back to L.A., Mahoney says, you're going to resume your priesthood, but no contact with children at all. And he installs him in this parish with a Monsignor who is a just a close friend of Mahoney's and is considered just like a really good priest. And he tells the priest, keep an eye on him. The archdiocese placed limitations on Baker's ministry, but the priest still found ways to access children. Several of his parishes had elementary schools next to the rectory. In 1996, Baker was caught in his private living quarters with an altar boy. The archdiocese responded by sending Baker on a sabbatical. In 2000, Baker walked into the chancery with a draft lawsuit from two brothers who accused him of abusing them consistently since 1986. Both Baker and the archdiocese agreed to settle quickly and quietly. And Mahoney agrees to pay more than $1 million to settle this potential lawsuit, but he, again, doesn't go to the police. After the draft lawsuit and the realization that they're going to have to pay more than $1.25 million, Mahoney says, you can't be a priest anymore. You can't, you can't wear your collar. You can't um, 
be in public as a priest. But Baker keeps at it. He's ingratiating himself with families by performing baptisms. And then everybody at the upper levels of the archdiocese realizes they've lost control of Baker, um, that he's molested lots of people, that they have done what they could within their organization to stop him, and it, nothing is working. And so one of his top deputies and a lawyer, like, you, you're going to have to make some kind of public announcement for the safety of commu- the community, that if they see this guy, who to them is just a priest that they like to be at their parish, they have to stay away from him. And Mahoney writes back, there's no alternative to public announcements at all the masses in 15 parishes, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Wow, that really scares the daylights out of me. And there's so much in that. Michael Baker is believed to have molested at least uh, two dozen boys. What really scared Mahoney was the public announcement. It's, It's like so telling. Baker was quietly laicized in 2000, despite the urging of his advisors and in violation of his own archdiocesan policies. Mahoney declined to report Baker to the police or notify parishes where Baker had served. Two years later, facing a nationwide media firestorm sparked by reports of abuse in Boston, Mahoney finally reported Baker to the police and notified Baker's former parishes. This is Crisis, Clergy Abuse in the Catholic Church. I'm Carna Lozoya. During this whole series, we keep coming back to one issue, bishops' accountability. What consequences have there been for bishops who have shielded abusers? When the church mishandles abuse allegations, it does lasting damage to survivors and their families. It undermines the credibility of the institution and creates an environment of distrust that prevents genuine reform. We'll explore more how Cardinal Mahoney addressed the sex abuse crisis in L.A. and consider whether the Church's newest effort to hold bishops accountable, a 2019 document called Vos Estes Lux Mundi, offers the Church a way forward. Besides Michael Baker, there was another case in L.A. that struck Harriet Ryan because she says it directly competed for time and space with Cardinal Mahoney's public agenda. There was a really horrible case in 1988 that I think just kind of crystallizes um, the Mahoney issue. There was a a priest named um, Nicolas Aguilera Rivera. He was a Mexican priest. He came to L.A. for nine months, and it's believed that during that nine-month time, he assaulted uh, 26 children. I mean, it must have been like literally all he was doing the entire time he was here. And it was so bad that it made its way to the police, unlike most of these cases. And Mahoney and his you know, deputies rightly recognized it as like a really awful situation. And the LAPD came to them and said, we want the altar boy list for this priest. And there was a discussion Mahoney was involved and he's taking notes where he's like, under no circumstances can we give that to them? Because that's what they needed to build their case. Um, And so the priest was charged, but the chancery warned him in advance and he fled to Mexico where he was from. And the last I heard, he was still a fugitive. So at that same time, so that's going on. And that sounds like a 
five alarm fire to me. Um, Mahoney, he had arranged to give an address to the Senate, a Senate committee on nuclear disarmament. He's flying to DC, crafted this perfect speech he was going to give to a committee. And so this, this Mexican priest situation is playing out and some of the detectives have become so frustrated with the church response that they have actually gone to the media about it, saying the church won't cooperate with us. And so Mahoney dashes off like a a memo to his press secretary saying, you know, I want you to have a copy of my nuclear disarmament speech that I'm going to give today in D.C. The press aide writes back and goes, okay, thanks for this um, speech. I haven't gotten any calls about it. I am getting a lot of calls about Father Aguilera Rivera. And that was like a nightmare for Mahoney because he wanted the focus to be on the speech in D.C. and the church's feelings about nuclear disarmament. And this abuse of children in, in this one parish was problematic for him. I mean, let's just be honest, like not because of the damage done to 26 children, but because it was a media, it was a distraction to the media. Ryan said that Mahoney loved to be involved in whatever big story was happening in L.A. and described him as incredibly press savvy. He was always looking at ways that he could get the church and himself out front and center. So if you think of any big event that happened in L.A. in the late 80s and the 90s, Mahoney was at the front of the press conference. So the 1992 riots, he did half dozen TV interviews back to back begging the looters to examine their conscience and return the items that they had stolen. And many people returned them. (laughs) O.J. Simpson, he was always talking about race relations. You know, he'd be interviewed about the trial, not the twists and turns, but about what it said about race relations in L.A. Every presidential candidate who was traveling through um, California, I mean, meeting with Mahoney was a must, and there would be like a press conference afterwards. So, um... He wanted to control the narrative so much. And I think it came out of a place of really loving the church and wanting it to be a vital part of modern America. But he just completely misjudged what the most important issue was, you know? And it was it was the media and the coverage of the clergy abuse. I mean, it just it turned overnight on him. He spent all his time on image and he failed to see what what it was that was going to destroy the church's image more than anything else. Cardinal Mahoney was the Archbishop of L.A. from 1985 to 2011, 26 years. That in itself makes him a singular figure. So he was Archbishop for the entire arc of the clergy abuse scandal, from the time that the church was, you know, engaged in active cover-up of molesters through the public exposure of that um, and the outrage from people in the public and and the church until the part where being a priest, being a bishop, was no longer seen as a mark of a moral person. But as someone who should be treated with suspicion, he stayed there that entire time. Ryan believes that Mahoney was singular in another way as well. 
And the second reason that he is singular is that he took a modern approach to running his organization in terms of record keeping. Mahoney was like, with everything he did, he kept records the way like a publicly <laughs> traded company does. Like everything was documented, signed off on memos, kept in neat files. Like, he, you know, he was a sophisticated, intelligent, modern guy, and he's going to run things like a big corporation um, and not just like, you know, say, don't write things down. I, I guess maybe, maybe that's evidence that he didn't think what he was doing was wrong. But his handwriting is literally all over the clergy abuse files. So you can track, he's there for, you know, three decades, and you can also track what he's thinking because he's keeping notes on it. He's writing memos about it. Those memos became public in 2013 as a result of a huge settlement between victim survivors and the L.A. Archdiocese in 2007. 508 victims were paid $660 million, the largest clergy abuse settlement to date. The judge ordered the archdiocese to publish the personnel records for every priest named in the settlement, 12,000 pages. Mahoney retired in 2011, so it was the new Archbishop of Los Angeles, Jose Gomez, who had to release the files in 2013. In his statement accompanying the release, Gomez called the files brutal and painful reading. He said reading through them was the saddest experience he'd had since becoming archbishop. The files showed casual references to avoiding police and sending offending priests away for treatment. For the most part, priests who were accused of abuse were not just shuffled to another parish. That, that didn't really happen. I mean, Mahoney confronted the issue head on privately. The private's really important. He met with these men. He sent them to treatment. There were tons of letters back and forth with the priests and their treating uh, counselors and physicians in New Mexico about how their progress was going. He did not want any of this to ever become public. And he didn't want the police involved. So I, I think the failures in LA were a failure to care about the victims, to prioritize the victims. And the second part was just like a commitment to keeping the police away from priests accused of abuse. And there are actually memos from 19, 1986 and 1987 where he's talking to one of his top lieutenants about how, you know, they can avoid the law for, for these guys, um, how they can send them to the kind of therapists who don't are not mandatory reporters, um, how they can send them out of state and keep them out of state for treatment, but then leave them there. And we had police detectives tell us that they always felt that they were in a foot race when they were investigating a priest because they knew that the chance we would try to get the priest out of the diocese, out of town, out of the country before they could make a case. When Archbishop Gomez released the documents, he also relieved Cardinal Mahoney of all administrative or public duties. The next day, the Archbishop clarified that Mahoney remained an Archbishop Emeritus in good standing, with no restrictions on his ministry. Mahoney defended himself on his personal blog. He said nothing in his background or education prepared him to deal with clergy abuse. He admitted the mistakes he'd made and said he had apologized for them. He also wanted recognition for the policies he set up to prevent clergy abuse during his tenure. 
By the mid-90s, Mahoney had set up a sexual abuse advisory board made up of lay people and experts. In 2002, he implemented a zero-tolerance policy. In 2004, he issued the report to the people of God, which included a disclosure of failings and an apology for the way cases were handled in the past. In a statement given to us for this podcast, the Archdiocese of Los Angeles spoke strongly in defense of Cardinal Mahoney's record as a leader for reform. It reads in part, quote, Cardinal Mahoney committed himself and all who serve in the archdiocese to addressing those failings to ensure the protection of minors, prevention of abuse, and continued support for victim survivors. He has personally met with approximately 100 victim survivors and continues these meetings to personally apologize and accept accountability, unquote. The archdiocese also pointed out that after multiple grand jury investigations, Mahoney never faced any criminal charges for his actions. The full statement is available in the show notes. While Mahoney made important strides toward addressing the sexual abuse of minors throughout his ministry, he also made serious errors along the way. His attempts to address the sexual abuse of minors privately, with minimal involvement of the civil authorities, not only allowed abuser priests to victimize more children, it also prevented many victims of sexual abuse from getting justice in a court of law. When a bishop has failed in a serious matter, after he has apologized, after he has made what restitution he can, changed what policies he can change, after all of this, should he remain in a place of prominence in the church community? Or does accountability demand more than that? And who gets to decide? The laity? The victims? The bishops themselves? Or is this a question Rome can decide? After the break, we'll look at Pope Francis's latest attempt to tackle the difficult and complicated question of accountability for bishops. In 2019, Pope Francis issued a document called Vos Estis Lux Mundi, which was meant to get the global church on the same page about how to handle cases of clergy sex abuse. Vos Estis lays out a clear procedure for handling allegations of abuse and cover-up against bishops. It's the Vatican's first attempt at this kind of reform, and it has an expiration date, 2022. The presumption is that it will need to be revised and updated. Vos Hestes adopted what is known as the Metropolitan Model for handling allegations about bishops. A metropolitan is the ranking archbishop in a given geographic region or province. Cardinal Timothy Dolan, for example, is the metropolitan for the province that includes all the dioceses in the state of New York. I'm Archbishop of New York. Now that means there's what we call an ecclesiastical, a church province of New York. There would be the archdiocese in New York, and then there would be the, what we call the suffragan dioceses under it. So here in the province of New York, there's the archdiocese in New York. I'd be called the metropolitan, and then you got the you got the bishop of Brooklyn, the Rockville Center, Albany, Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo. Uh, Ogdensburg. Uh, I hope I'm not missing any or I'm going to hear from them. So those would be my suffragan bishops. And a metropolitan has always had an obligation to love, 
uh, to affirm and, if necessary, to correct the bishops under him. Vosestes mandates that when an allegation against a bishop in the province comes in, it falls to the metropolitan to investigate it. The obvious criticism of this model is that it still relies on bishops investigating their brother bishops. So people say, hey, thanks be to God, the bishops are now getting the idea they better start looking after one another too. But secondly, they're reverting to the old boys network that didn't work before. You know, pre-Dallas, what happened if there was an accusation? Well, the bishop would meet with, uh, you know, uh, two or three of his trusted priests and they'd review it and make a decision. So all you had was fat, cigar-smoking, uh, whiskey-drinking, balding Irish bishops uh, who were locked in a smoke-filled room making decisions about their priests. That's the old boys' network. That didn't work, and we don't do it anymore. We, we trust in, in police, and we trust in review boards. We trust in forensic investigations. That works well, and now we're going back to it in the metropolitan model. That's a criticism you hear. So what's important, Karna, is this that we trust others to aid us in the investigation. So that criticism that the metropolitan model is just a reversion to the old boys network would be valid if we ourselves, by ourselves, judged this. And no bishop who's, no archbishop, because metropolitans are archbishops, no archbishop who's sane is gonna do that anymore. So while the allegation might come to us, what are we going to do immediately? Well, we're going to say, has this been turned over to the police? Okay, number one. Number two, I better hire an outside, credible, renowned forensic uh, experts to do the investigation. And number three, when the data is gathered after extraordinarily scrupulous investigation, it just doesn't come to me for decision. I would seek the guidance of some experts uh, in canon law, in, in law enforcement, in psychology, somewhat like we do with the priests, okay? So the, the documents of the Holy See, we're talking about Vosestis that set up the metropolitan model. While they don't use the term review board, like we do with the Dallas Charter, which has worked beautifully, by the way, the review boards, uh, they do give us a lot of latitude, and they do, they are more than happy uh, to allow us uh, to use as, as much outside counsel as possible, okay? The difference with the bishop, of course, is that uh, then the ultimate decision is sent to Rome with my, what they call, votum. And does that go, who does that go to in Rome, to the Pope himself, or, or who would that go to? You know, uh, Karna, I should know the answer to this. Ultimately, it would go to the Pope, but I think it would go through to the Pope through uh, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. So the, I would send to the prefect, here's the allegation. Here's what legal authority, what the DA said about it. Here's what forensic investigation said about it. Here's what my group of experts who assessed it said about it. And here's my votum. Let me know what they say. The good thing is, um, Karna, and thanks be to God, I haven't had many, but bishops, my own bishops in this province, against whom there has been an accusation, are eager to cooperate and have outsiders look into it because they say, well, we're not surprised accusations have come in. It's almost like we're asking for them, but I have a clean conscience here 
And I am convinced that I want as thorough an investigation as possible, and I don't want you to do it. I want experts to do it, and I want to cooperate because I'm sure I'm going to be vindicated. So what does Cardinal Dolan think about Vosestis? Vosestis, I think, is a, is a very enlightened document that is a work in progress. Pardon the, the cliché. Can I give you an example? Because things come up that were not anticipated. So a year ago, the statute of limitations fell in New York, sadly, okay? Uh, and that means, of course, that we have a tsunami of accusations against priests, most of which we already knew about. There weren't many new ones. And there's been a couple against bishops. Most of the time, they're public, okay? But they also, under Vos Estes, I got to begin to investigate them. Vos Estes establishes a clear timetable for how investigations are to proceed. The idea is to ensure that cases are dealt with quickly and don't linger for years. Cardinal Dolan explained why this hasn't always worked in practice. Now, Vos Estes laudably says, if you get an accusation against wrongdoing by a bishop, let's do this uh, with alacrity because you need to move expeditiously. So I write to Rome and I say, there's an accusation that has come to me about one of my suffragan bishops of something that he was alleged to have done a half century ago. Uh, I know, I will presume you're going to deputize me to investigate it according to Vos Estes, but you must know that it is also a civil case and that there will be civil investigations. And I don't think you'd want me to ignore the results of the civil investigations, right? But I'm saying to the Holy See, am I correct in thinking <clears throat> that it might be wise for us to wait for the results of the civil investigation so that that data would be part of my report to Rome? You see what I'm saying here? Now, that couldn't have been anticipated when Vos Estes came. The Holy See wisely has said to me, Timothy, you got a good point there. Keep us posted, and when the civil investigation's done, let yours click in, use, use the data you've got, and then let us know. So we're kind of learning. One of the first cases of a bishop mishandling allegations of clergy misconduct post Vosestis took place in Cincinnati. I spoke about the case with Chris Altieri, executive editor of the Catholic Herald, in 2013, Bishop Joseph Binzer received complaints about a priest in the archdiocese named Father Jeff Drew. More complaints came in 2015. These were complaints that alleged uh, the hugging, inappropriate touching, talking about the physical appearance, sexual banter, behaviors that child protection experts generally would consider parts of, you know, part of a grooming patterns, right? And the, the, the central office forwarded the concerns to Bishop Binzer uh, because he was, at the time, the head of the priest personnel board. Now, Bishop Binzer referred the complaints to county prosecutors. That was all according to established church procedure. Uh, they found in them no evidence of uh, criminal behavior. But Bishop Binzer didn't pass them up the line. He didn't give them to his uh, uh, superior, and he also didn't share them with the priest personnel board. 
He met with Father Drew privately uh, twice, and that's according to the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. Uh, and they sort of, you know, relied on assurances from Father Drew that uh, the behavior would cease. And one of the questions that I had was, you know, well, in non-suspect times, you maybe do that once. And that is a very, very borderline case and a, a judgment call that anyone, I think, would want to look at more closely. But twice is, you know, one of those things that post-2002, that should raise significant red flags. Archbishop Dennis Schnur of Cincinnati learned of the 2013 and 2015 allegations in 2018 shortly after Father Drew started a new assignment. When Archbishop Schnur found out that his auxiliary bishop had withheld these allegations, he was, to quote a Catholic news agency source in the chancery, as mad as I've ever seen him. He used words I've never heard him use before. In a statement, Archbishop Schnur apologized that Binzer's negligence happened on his watch. He wrote, It's obvious that in this matter, we have handled things very, very poorly— made serious mistakes. And for that, I am deeply, deeply apologetic. I'm deeply sorry. I'm sorry for the pain that this has caused so many people. Meanwhile, the evidence piled up against Father Drew. And also during the summer of 2019, a separate witness came forward to claim that uh, Father Drew had sexually assaulted him repeatedly. Again, this, this happened over a period of years, uh, in the, you know, from the late 80s to the early 90s. Uh, this was abuse that allegedly occurred before Drew entered priestly formation. He, he's been arrested and charged and is facing trial for child rape. He's pled not guilty, was scheduled to go to trial uh, in October of uh, this year, and he was, uh, you know, could have faced, could be facing life in prison if he's convicted. Here we have what looks like a pretty straightforward case. Bishop Binzer may have reported Father Drew to civil authorities, but he did not report him to the proper church channels. He took matters into his own hands, rather than adhere to the processes of the Dallas Charter. As head of priest personnel, there really isn't an excuse for his actions. Binzer offered his resignation as auxiliary bishop in 2020, 10 years before he reached normal retirement age for a bishop. The Archdiocese press release made it clear that his resignation was in some way tied to his negligence. But when Pope Francis accepted Binzer's resignation, the reason was not shared. He faced no charges. He resigned in, you know, as a as a bishop in good standing, and there was no Vos Estes investigation in Cincinnati. So why wasn't Bishop Binzer's case a Vos Estes case? You're asking a very good question. I don't know exactly what happened, and nobody knows exactly what happened. And one of the reasons, the main reason we don't know exactly what happened is because nobody has taken a look at it. And in the bluntest possible layman's terms, 
if you don't try and find out what the story is, it'll be real easy not to know what the story is. If you don't ask the uncomfortable questions and not assume that everything is well-intentioned idiocy, and if sometimes that isn't enough to cost a guy his job, then it's tough to see how the culture is able to support any legal framework for uh, investigation and accountability that's put on paper. And if you're not going to try to use your tools that you've given yourself in a place like Cincinnati, when something like this comes to light, you know, I I don't know what they're good for. Uh, And I, I think that this has left lots of people shrugging their shoulders. At the very least, the case represents a failure of communication. There may be a good reason why Bosestes wasn't used in Binzer's case, but there hasn't been any attempt to explain why not. And if it was used in this case, why not say so? Binzer aside, there are at least three U.S. bishops currently being investigated under Vosestis. The time limit for the investigations has been exceeded in two of them. The first bishop to be officially investigated under the Vosestis procedure was Bishop Hepner of the Diocese of Crookston in Minnesota. It's been more than 450 days since the investigation was first announced. The lack of transparency in cases like Binzer's and the delays in cases we know do involve Vosestis are an ongoing source of frustration. Vosestis is intended to provide a way for holding bishops accountable, to serve justice, but also to restore credibility. For Vosestis to succeed in that regard, it not only needs to be put to work, it must be seen to work. There is generally in the culture of leadership within the church right now. This isn't a technical issue with the law itself. It's something uh, that any law, any shape that it's given, uh, any paper reform uh, will have to reckon with. And that is that, you know, within the clerical culture generally, and especially in the higher ranks of the clergy, there is a cultivation of the art of not knowing and not making trouble and staying off the radar of the guys who are above you. And that's not a good characteristic to foster in a a leadership outfit, in a leadership class. The very name of the office that bishops hold. Uh, The bishop, an English word that comes from the Greek word episkopos. It means overseer. So it's the bishop's job to know. And absorbing and being steeped in a culture that privileges not knowing and not seeing and keeping your head down and staying out of the way and uh, doing what you're told... That's not the thing that is going to foster far-seeing, incisive, and thorough 
oversight. Yeah, you know, there's a couple uh, criticisms about that the bishops are investigating bishops and nobody is involved in the process who's like not a bishop. You know, what are some alternatives to that? Well, there's a big argument, right? And, you know, is the problem legal slash legislative? Is it cultural? And the answer is yes. It's, it's both. The church is a power structure. Or if that makes you uncomfortable, let's say that whatever else the church is, and she is other things, she has a power structure that's inescapable. But right now, uh, at present, in in the rough present of, you know, the, the last quarter of the year of our Lord, 2020, the diocesan bishop and the whole body of bishops taken together, the college throughout the world, uh, each has and all have together more power in terms of governance than they've had at pretty much any other time in the life of the church. And the laity, lower ranks of the clergy, other subsidiary organizations and levels of society, of the society that is the church, uh, have less. So the question is, uh, how do we share power in a way that does not fall afoul of the church's own constitution, which is divinely given, right? And that's a tricky question. It's not the sort of thing that we're going to solve overnight, and it's going to take trial and error. Before we start trying things, we need to have a real, I think, systematic conversation, and we need to have it sooner rather than later, because we're not going to get anywhere if we don't, I don't think. One way to change the church's culture is to change the law. Bosestes is a step in that direction. But we need to make sure the law isn't just words on a page. One of the ongoing heresies in the institutional Catholic Church is that if you say something, make a statement about something, put it on paper, it becomes real. Thomas Doyle, inactive priest, canon lawyer, and longtime advocate for victims of clergy abuse. It is the appearance of progress. But the institutional church appears to be able to respond to things, and it makes it look like it's doing things progressively, but it, appear, it, it responds with policies, protocols, administrative uh, statements, and so on. What's important is not what's on the paper, it's what happens. Is this gonna be taken seriously? Will there be an effect? Now, at this stage of the game, I think there's been a couple bishops that are being investigated because of this but I don't know of any that have actually had to hammer, had the hammer come down on them. And believe me, if they applied this retroactively to every bishop who's still alive, who's covered up uh, for sexual abuse, there'd be a lot of them that would be falling, a lot of them. We have been drowning. Victims and, and those who um, have been waiting for something have been drowning in words from the hierarchy for 35 years. Drowning in words. What we're waiting for is action. 
It's one thing to enact policies that hold accountable bishops who have committed or facilitated clerical abuse. But knowing what to do with 70 years of abuse, cover-up, and the tangled mess of human wreckage that's been left in its wake, this takes time and institutional persistence. Smart reforms are necessary, but their implementation requires that the institutional church accept the painful consequences of a clerical culture that allowed the sexual abuse of minors to fester in the heart of the church for generations. It means recognizing that the burden of the abuse crisis will often be borne by the innocent rather than the guilty, including those bishops who will spend their entire careers cleaning up messes created by their predecessors. It also means accepting responsibility for the damage done to countless lives, devastated by sexual abuse, and working tirelessly to help victim survivors of abuse and their families to heal. Next time on Crisis, the McCarrick Report. For our final episode in this series, we'll sit down with Ed Condon of the Catholic News Agency and Stephen White, Executive Director of the Catholic Project, to discuss this unprecedented report on the rise and fall of Theodore McCarrick. From the Catholic Project at the Catholic University of America, you're listening to Crisis. Our podcast team includes myself, Carnal Lozoya, executive producer Stephen White, producer Jeff Gosser, and communications manager and writer Sarah Perla. Sound designed by Paul Veitkus. Music courtesy of Jay Tibbetts and APM Music. Our theme song was composed by Gautam Shrikishan. Marketing and distribution provided by Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate cover art by Tom Grillo, and a special thanks to Karen Michelle and all of our guests. For an episode guide or for more information about The Catholic Project, go to thecatholicproject.org. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can receive confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. If the abuse is related to the Catholic Church, you can also contact your diocese's Victim Assistance Coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.